So we are three weeks into a new series called The Abundant Life. This is actually something that Jesus promised to his disciples. He said that I have come to give you life. And you may see it in your Bible as life to the full. In some Bibles, it says the abundant life. And when Jesus makes that promise, he's saying at least two things. First of all, he knows what the good life is. So if you want to have the good life, he says that he has the answer to your existential question. But then on top of that, he is the source of that good life. He can give the good life to you and to me. Now, each week, we're going to look at an answer to that question offered by our culture. Unless you live on a private island by yourself and you have no interactions with other human beings, I guess that person may not hear these messages, but for the rest of us, we are going to hear something like this. This is how to have the good life. And last week, we gave one example of that, one answer to that question, which is, if you want to have a good life, be authentic. Be true to yourself. Don't live like anybody else tells you to live. Be who you are. And we talked about the appeal of that message, but we also talked about the limits of that message. At the end of the day, it doesn't work as a lifestyle because we're all sinful. There's all desires that we have that are broken and misguided and misdirected, and authentic sin is still sin. So there's an an inherent issue to living a lifestyle that's totally summed up by the phrase, be true to yourself. And this week, we're focusing on a different uh, answer from our culture, which is the good life is found in consumption, or to put it more specifically, if you want to have a good life, go shopping. Here's an example of what I mean. 16 days after 9-11, President George W. Bush spoke to airline employees at O'Hare International Airport, and he said the following. I want to quote this and get these words exact. When the terrorists struck, they wanted to create an atmosphere of fear. One of the great goals of this nation's war is to restore public confidence in the airline industry. It is to tell the traveling public, get on board. Do your business around the country. Fly and enjoy America's great destination spots. Get down to Disney World in Florida. Take your families and enjoy life the way we want it to be enjoyed. The mayor of New York City said something very similar to the UN General Assembly special session. He said, take a stand against terrorism. And he said the way that we should do this is by coming to enjoy New York City's restaurants, museums, sporting events, shopping, and Broadway. Now, taken on its own, that call doesn't seem particularly wicked or malicious in intent, but stop for a second to think about what that message really is. In a time of crisis, in a time of tragedy, our political leaders called upon us to summon up the energy to buy more stuff, to entertain ourselves. That's exactly what I mean by this word consumption. It goes by many other names. You can call it consumerism. You can call it materialism. Christians have said that two of the great deadly sins are greed and gluttony. Whatever you call it, the promise of consumption is the same. If you want to have a good life, consume more, devour more. Now, 
I think the average Christian in the room would probably say, whether you're here or you're watching online, Mitch, I don't want to be consumeristic. That doesn't appeal to me. I think the average American might say, Mitch, I, I don't think always consuming more is better. But even if we don't say it out loud, I think consumption is the way we live. We walk into a store and we view ourselves as customers, and the customer is always right, except at the DMV. But everywhere else, the customer is always right. We are correct. Ben showed me a billboard this week that actually fits so perfectly with this sermon. If you can't see it on the screen, it's a billboard that says, the joy of not being sold anything. We are so used to being recipients of millions upon millions of advertisements that when a billboard is not selling us something, we do a double take. We can't believe it because we're so numb to marketing companies constantly treating us as a target audience, and we sometimes don't realize that they are selling us a way of life, and we are buying into it, which is why I want to go back to the beginning of Scripture. I want to go back to Genesis 3 because I think what happens in the Garden of Eden actually sheds light on our temptation. Now, there are tons of perspectives on what the first sin really was. Christian theologians have debated about this since the beginning. Was it that Adam and Eve were proud? Was it that they were disobedient? Was it that they were foolish? I think all of those perspectives are true, but I want to add one more. I think that the first sin is consumption. I think it is greed and gluttonous consumerism. So, I want to go back to that story. I want to reread it again and see if we can ask a kind of, maybe it's an obvious question, maybe it's not an obvious question. Why does God prohibit Adam and Eve from eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Because we know he plants many trees in the garden, and he says, you're free to eat of all of these, but there's just one that you can't eat. And it seems strange. Isn't knowledge a good thing? Is God scared of us being wise? Why would he prohibit us from eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil? And so I want to go back and see what happens in Genesis chapter 3. So we'll put the verses on the screen, and you can also find them in your Bible on page 2. And I love the way that Jenny read this, because that's the exact tone Satan would have used. The Lord, so the Lord creates this serpent, and we aren't given much background information about it. All we're told is the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he says to the woman, did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And Eve responds with most of the truth. She says, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. But Eve adds one thing that God did not say, she says, and you must not touch it. Now, if you go back to chapter 2, that's not what God says. Now, we don't know why Eve added these words. Maybe it was self-protection. She thought, okay, as long as I don't touch it, then I won't eat the tree that's prohibited to us. And so, but, but putting those words into the mouth of God probably wasn't a great idea. Regardless, the serpent lies by telling so much of twisted truth. He says three things, and we, he's so smart, you've got to pick apart his words, okay? He says, you won't certainly die. If you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be like God. And three, you will know good and evil. Your eyes will be opened. Okay, let's take time to break down these lies. First of all, 
Yes, they do not immediately die when they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but they are kicked out of the Garden of Eden, which means they lose access to the tree of life, which means they will inevitably die. Right? Satan is so smart here. You won't, I mean, you won't certainly die. You won't immediately die. Nothing bad is going to happen, but of course, they will inevitably die. The second thing he says is you will be like God, which by itself is not a bad thing. Jesus himself tells us to be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. The problem is they are pridefully trying to become godlike on their own terms. Third and finally, Satan says, you will know good and evil, which again, by itself, is not a bad thing. Solomon himself asks God for a discerning heart and to know between right and wrong. He uses the same exact phrase that Satan uses here, and God gives him that wisdom. So inherently that wisdom is not wrong, but they seek it from the wrong source. Right? See, Satan is so smart, he, he's, he, he's so crafty and cunning and wise, but in a twisted way, he speaks these half or three-fourths truths and tricks Eve and Adam. And so, buying into what he says, they take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, why is this a big deal I think it's because Satan wants Eve and Adam to take and consume what they should wait and receive, right? Because God wants Adam and Eve to live with forever with him. God wants them to be wise. He wants them to be more like God, but on his terms. The problem is that Adam and Eve take and consume from the wrong source at the wrong time what they could have received from God at the right time. And that matters a lot for us when it comes to the lie of consumption. Now, sometimes the problem with consumption is what we consume, right? We consume drugs, we consume porn, and there's no amount of drugs or porn that are okay. But other, I think more often the time, the problem is how much we consume, right? We even use words that indicate this. We binge Netflix. We go on a six-hour video game spree. We have, we, we take something acceptable or good and we have too much or too little of it. I think other times the problem is the reason we consume what we consume. We drink alcohol, but in order to drown our sorrows, we get on Facebook for gossip and Twitter for outrage and Instagram for jealousy. We use these things all for the wrong reason. And so consumption is what we do all the time. We take a good thing from the wrong source for the wrong reason at the wrong time. And after we consume, we feel just like Adam and Eve in the garden. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, it says, after they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, yes, their eyes are open. They realize they're naked, and so they sew fig leaves together and make coverings for themselves. Yes, their eyes are opened, but not to God's wisdom, to their own disobedience and greed. They realize that they're naked, but they don't know if they can trust each other. They're ashamed because they don't know how the other will view them. This is why we can't downplay consumption in our lives. Haven't you noticed that when you get in this lifestyle, you often feel uh, worse than you did at the beginning, right? You, you start with one episode, which becomes two episodes, which becomes three episodes, which becomes four, and by the end of it, you need to take a break from your break. 
right? After the millionth video on YouTube or TikTok, don't you just feel this melancholy spread through you? Where did all of that time go? Have you ever gotten onto Facebook because you're frustrated with something and you, and you post something and maybe it's a little bit passive aggressive but it feels good at the time and then it starts a Facebook argument and then three hours later you have a chain of comments and you're just humiliated and you feel ridiculous because of the fight you started. Whatever your poison is, it doesn't have to be any of those. You think that this thing you crave will feed you but it actually kills you from the inside. Think we fall into this all the time. And, and of course, there's an appeal to a consumption-based lifestyle, right? By the weekend, I want to veg out. I want to scroll infinitely through my phone. At the end of a stressful work day, I don't want one scoop of ice cream. I want as many scoops of ice cream as possible. After we get Evelyn down to sleep, I want to watch three, four episodes of whatever show we're watching. I want you to know that this sermon is directed at me. It's not pointing the finger. But I think we have to recognize just the limits of a consumption-based lifestyle. We are constantly promised joy and happiness from what we consume, and it just makes us feel hollow and empty. You think, okay, once that brown box from Amazon arrives at my doorstep, I'll feel better. But there's always something else you can buy. You think, I'm going to be satisfied when I get the iPhone 14, but iPhone 15 is coming out soon. We constantly feel empty. We think this is going to fulfill us. We think consumption is going to finally put the pain away, but it doesn't. And I think the core issue with consumption is that it prevents our discipleship. All of the things we love about Jesus and want to be more like him in these respects is prevented by a consumption-based lifestyle. Two-day shipping is not going to make you a more patient person. Individualistic consumerism will not make us a community-based church. All of the core virtues of consumption prevent us from becoming better disciples of Jesus. But the good news is that there is actually an alternative to this. We don't have to become passive zombies you know, consuming more and more content. There is a Christian way of life that Jesus presents to us that is better than consumption. I want to walk through three of these because I think in the tiny doses that I've experienced them, they have improved my life and made me a better disciple of Jesus. I think the first way to fight back against a consumption-based lifestyle is to receive, to see the world as a gift, to constantly be thanking God as a practice. Thank you for what you've given me. A consumptive worldview sees the whole world as kind of how can it make me more happy, but a receptive worldview sees all things as gifts from God. I think the second Christian way to fight back is to create consumption basically devours something. It sucks it dry and uses it up, but if we start to become more creative people, it can enliven our life. I love this article that I read about this this week. It said, the truth is that for every hour you do not spend watching Netflix, your life will be improved, and you will have the opportunity to do something better with that time, namely reading, cooking, gardening, playing a board game, building something with your hands, chatting with a neighbor, grabbing coffee with a friend, serving in a food pantry, learning a language, cleaning, sleeping, journaling, praying, sitting on your porch, resting, catching up with a spouse or a housemate. Every one of these things will be a qualitative improvement on your life. 
And I think the difference in all of those examples between what we normally do is that they are creative rather than consumptive. And Jesus can inspire us to create. I think the third Christian way to fight back against a consumption-based life is to fast. Because fasting does not make sense in a consumption-based life. Why would you give something up that's good just for the sake of God? Because that's what the definition of fasting is. So try it out sometime. Jesus preaches about this on the Sermon on the Mount. Fast from food, fast from technology, fast from something you know is good, but give it up for a time just for God. There's no quicker way to destroy the consumptive lifestyle than to fast. Now, each week I've tried to share a few like heroes of these uh, kind of alternative Christian lifestyles, and I want to introduce you to a hero of faith of mine. Uh, his name is John Chrysostom. I actually have a picture of him, this piece of art, hanging in my office. The word Chrysostom means the golden mouth because he was such an excellent preacher, and so I try to be inspired by him. Uh, he grew up and lived in, uh, in Antioch, which was basically an ancient version of Harvard or Oxford. He lived in this thriving intellectual center. And first he became a monk, then he became a deacon, and then he became a, pr a priest. And uh, in the year 388, he delivered these series of sermons on the rich man and Lazarus. And I just think that they are so relevant to... Uh, this topic of a consumption-based lifestyle. I'm just going to read them because they're just that good. Let us learn from the rich man in the parable to not call the rich lucky nor the poor unfortunate. Rather, if we were to tell the truth, the rich man is not the one who's collected many possessions, but the rich man is the one who needs few possessions. The poor man is not the one who has no possessions, but the one who has many desires. We ought to consider this the definition of poverty and wealth. So let's say you see someone greedy for many things. You should consider him the poorest of all, even if he's acquired everyone else's money. If, on the other hand, you see someone with few needs, you should count him the richest of all, even if he has acquired nothing. Here's a second quote. Our money is the Lord's, however we've gathered it. If we provide for those in need, we shall obtain great plenty. This is why, the, why God has allowed you to have more. Not for you to waste it on prostitutes or drink or fancy food or expensive clothes and all other kinds of indulgences, but for you to distribute it to those in need. If you are affluent but spend more than you need, you will give an account of the funds that were entrusted to you. For you obtain more than others have, and if you have received it, do not spend it on yourself, but become a good steward. This is the third and final quote I want to read. To fail to share your wealth with the poor is theft from the poor and deprivation of their means of life. You do not possess your own wealth but theirs. And if you have that attitude, you will certainly offer your money to others and nourish Christ in poverty here, laying up for great profit hereafter. And you will be, a, be able to obtain the good things which are to come by the grace and kindness of our Lord Jesus Christ, with whom be glory, honor, and might to the Father, together with the Holy Spirit, now and to, unto the ages of ages. 
Okay. I mean, he's a really good preacher. But we don't like what he says. Because he goes against that consumption-based lifestyle that we've been sold. And really, he presents two ways of life to us. There's the abundant life in Christ in which we can receive and create and fast and be freed from the slavery of consumption, or we can have the American life where we try to flourish by shopping a little bit more. Which one do we want? Let's pray. Father, I confess that I can see so many areas in my life in which I just want to consume more and more. I'm sold this lie over and over again. If I just take what I want and how much I want at the time I want, for whatever reason I want, it's okay. It doesn't affect me. It makes me feel good. Father, we need to hear this truth over and over and over again. We need to fight back against consumerism and materialism and greed and gluttony. Father, some of us may feel some level of uh, shame or guilt. That's not the ultimate purpose of your gospel. We are called to be freed from that shame in order to live holy lives, and that's what so many of us want. We want to be more like Christ. We want to be closer disciples of Him. We want to be better apprentices who are following His way, but we see this in our lives, and it's such a great obstacle, and we know we don't have what it takes by our own willpower to get over those obstacles, so we need you. We need your Holy Spirit to fill us and empower us. We're daunted by this incredible call to receive the world as a gift and to create new things in this world and even to fast, to abstain from good things for a time just for you. We feel so overwhelmed and we're reminded of that each and every day. So we ask you to give us grace, forgive us our sins, but empower us to live holy lives, to be transformed to the image of Christ and to be more like you. Because Satan tempted us, always tempts us, to consume, to devour more and more. But you're a generous God. You are abundant in what you give us, and Christ promises abundant life. That's what we want. And so we come humbly to ask you for it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.